Good evening and welcome to Slam and Gavel, the show that tells you all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. Bradley's mother, Narky School, and passed away three months ago. He is autistic and needs structured routine and therapies he receives for his autism six days a week. However, Italy just entrusted Bradley to Italian social services. If he is ruled to go back, he will then face the next three to four years in the Italian foster care system, where he can't speak the language or understand the language. He will be taken away from the only family he has ever known. Please call Governor Hochul at 518-474-8390 and voice your concerns to keep Bradley here in these United States. That's Governor Hochul at 518-474-8390. 8390 hashtag keep Bradley safe. I have a brand new guest on. I'm proud to announce I have James Kelly on. He's a father unlawfully denied access to his children without having been accused or convicted of a crime and has embraced his right to practice law for himself out of necessity. While he is not admitted to practice law for others, he is not bound by fears of disbarment or unlawful arrest. He is leading the charge in New York State for the independent use of cameras in the courtroom to preserve evidence of what transpires in the courtroom with some success. He has recorded and live-streamed seven court proceedings in multiple cases without judicial permission and under the threat of arrest. And I totally welcome you, James Kelly, to slam the gavel. And how are you doing this? This is awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I I started back in uh, December of uh, uh, December of 2020. And uh, I I did so with the intention of being arrested. Mm -hmm. I intended to be arrested. And uh, so I walked in I put in the uh, application for permission to to record and broadcast, and of course that was denied. Uh, I moved the court in a formal motion, and of course that was denied. Uh, I had a conversation with the top court officer in October of uh, 2020, and with a smile on my face, I said, you're going to look to unlawfully arrest me in a, just before Christmas. And he looks at me and he says, why? And I point to the sign on the wall that says that there's to be no recording in the courtrooms. And he very politely asks me if I could possibly postpone that until April 1st or later. To which I responded, you're retiring? (laughs) And he admitted that he was. Um, And I told him I wasn't going to, uh, I, I wasn't going to put it off. So what, uh, what I had done is I had walked in that day. And I handed him a stack of papers that included the three charges that he could think to arrest me under and uh, a point-by-point rebuttal for each one of them in writing. Mm-hmm. So we, we sat outside in the hallway uh, and we discussed back and forth for about an hour. There was a high-level meeting with the top, uh, top court personnel uh, in the state to try to figure out what to do with me because they had never had anybody blatantly challenge Mm -hmm. the prohibition to recording in court in the way that I was doing. And quite frankly, they weren't prepared for me, despite the fact that I told them, yes, this is what I'm doing. Mm 
And the reason I did it, and I did it in my own case, is because I had been deprived of of due process, access to the record. Uh, I had had a judge actually mouth instructions over the top of the court reporter's head to the opposing counsel. Yeah. Uh, so this is the kind of thing that went on in my case. And I finally said no more. <laughs> and I, I wasn't going to to walk into the courtroom and, and do that again. As a matter of fact, there was a time that in the appellate division, uh, I had a hearing where there was no court reporter. And they, despite the fact that they had uh, the ability to live stream, didn't live stream. So there was no preservation of what, what went on in that record. Uh, so getting back to uh, December of, uh, December 23rd of 2020, um, I walk into the courtroom with my camera out live streaming to Facebook. I, it was, I, I approached it in such a subdued manner. I almost forgot to turn the camera on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It was like, okay, I'm going in now. And I, I turn the camera on. I start live streaming. I set it up so that I, I face it to uh, to everybody else. And I walk in with the screen facing the court. And, and the court can plainly see what I'm doing. Court tells me there's to be no recording. Turn off uh, the phone. Is the phone off? I, I said, that's an unlawful mandate. I'm just going to disregard that. Hmm. And... You know the judge wanted to throw me in court for in jail for contempt, but New York State Judicial Law Section seven fifty eight sub six sentence two prohibits him from having that power. So he gets up and runs off the bench and out of the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did he come back or not? He probably no. Uh, <laughs> that was the end of of that proceeding. And oh. uh, yeah, and then he uh, he rescheduled it for February 9th. Now, February 9th, the Office of Court Administration in New York put into place new policy and procedures such that in order to enter the courtroom, you had to voucher your phone. Mm. All right. Well, I walk in and I see New York State Civil Rights Law Section 52 posted on the door and I read it. And I said, that's just that doesn't apply. And uh, I continue on, and uh, I'm, I'm told, you have to voucher your phone. I said, really? Well, let me explain something to you. What you're doing is you're depriving me of my right of access to the court, or you're looking to unlawfully violate my Fourth Amendment rights because you have no probable cause to believe that a crime has been, is being, or is about to be committed, because I've walked into this courtroom before, live streamed, and have not been arrested for it. Mm -hmm. So you're either going to violate my Fourth Amendment rights or my right of access to the court. In either case, you're going to be a defendant in a federal lawsuit. So what I'm going to suggest you do is go and, and make sure that you're indemnified for unlawfully depriving me of those rights. I'm going to sit down here on the bench and I'm going to fill out a notice of claim. Uh, as the first step in, in making you a, a defendant. And we'll meet back here and say five, 10 minutes. He's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he goes in, he checks what I had to say. He comes out and he says, Mr. Kelly, go right on in. I start up the phone, I live stream, I walk right in and did it again. 
and we go through the same process with the judge and asks me if I'm live streaming. And yes, I am. And orders me to turn off. And I say, yeah, this is an unlawful, yeah, I can't speak, an unlawful mandate. I'm going to disregard that. And he gets up and he runs off the bench again. <laughs> uh, never to return. <laughs> well, that's his way of shutting me down from the record. Is once he's out of the room, the record stops. Or once he's off the bench, the record stops. So he talks his way from the chair to the door. And, uh, of course, his words are captured, mine or not. So he resets it for June 29th uh, of uh, 2021. And I walk in and I said, all right, so I'm going to try something a little different here. And uh, I tried to get a second court reporter. Couldn't get one. Mm. So I had four court watchers with me. And I walk in without a recording device. Now, I don't tell them one way or the other what I have on me and what I don't have on. But there's nothing obvious that would suggest that I had a phone, a recording device, or anything. I walked in just the way the judge wanted me to walk in. And he required me to, to acknowledge that there was to be no recording in the courtroom, et cetera, et cetera. And I just wouldn't respond to that. I asked them what would happen if I don't respond. And I asked him twice, very clearly twice. Mm -hmm. And he avoided the answer. So what ended up happening after that is I invoked my Fifth Amendment right against the self-incrimination. Now, he can look at that in, in the least favorable manner uh, for me. And that's fine. But uh, what he chose to do instead was kick me out for being in default and not ready to proceed, which is uh, it's not permissible because he needs to warn me first. And he failed to do so after two requests. So that is a judicial error. And that is under appeal. Um, he kicked me out. The transcript was 11 pages long. Mm -hmm. the, I, I was there for the first five pages. Now, how am I supposed to certify the last six pages as accurate without a recording? Mm -hmm. I can't. <laughs> and that's why we need an electronic and an independent electronic recording of every court proceeding. And my argument is that it is an absolute procedural due process right. We've looked at due process for over 800 years uh, since uh, 1215 when the Magna Carta was signed by King John mm -hmm. uh, under the duress of, of arms. And, uh, well, we still are discussing and fine-tuning it today as, as substantive due process. However, we also have procedural due process where there are certain things, certain procedures that need to happen. One of those is that in order to have judicial review, we need to certify a transcript as being correct. And if there are changes to be made, that's the time to change them. New York State Judicial Law, excuse me, CPLR Section 5525 sub C uh, says that you have 15 days to do that and, and get it settled. And I've had people that have found obvious errors in their transcript and the court reporters have refused to, to change them. 
refuse to correct them. And to make a substantial change, you need to have a substantial basis, meaning actual evidence. Mm -hmm. So for the court, the, uh, the Office of Court Administration to turn around and uh, prohibit recording in courts is essentially prohibiting procedural due process. And for them to do that strips every judge in the state of their subject matter jurisdiction under the doctrine of Ex parte Young 1908, because they cannot deprive you of your rights in their official capacity. They can only do that in their personal capacity. And their subject matter jurisdiction attaches only to their official capacity. So when they strip themselves of their official capacity, their official character, they're left there standing in their personal character without subject matter jurisdiction. And that deprives the entire judiciary of any legitimacy. Mm -hmm. So let's see, that was the first time, the second time. Um, then I, I, I ended up having a, a motion that I put into my appeal. And one of the motions that I put into my appeal was to concurrently live stream from the floor of the appellate department, the second uh, New York State's second department. And I put that in on, on May 23rd of last year uh, into submission. And you would normally expect in a couple of months to have some sort of decision. Well, I set a record in mine uh, of over nine months. Nine months. I would call them every month asking uh, any news. And they'd say no. So what I started doing is saying, okay, I need to, to force this issue. So I took on a client. And this client, I looked through uh, surreptitious recordings that she had. And uh, I looked at the transcripts and I said, well, these don't match up. Not even close. And so I took her on as a client and uh, started to live stream. And the very first time we were going to do it, it was going to be an in-person proceeding, uh, but it was switched at the last minute to uh, to virtual. So I just, I was there at her side and live streamed virtually. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to going back into the courtroom and forcing the issue because the Office of Court Administration has again uh, changed their policy and procedures. What they've, uh, what they've done is they've directed all of the court officers that if somebody is found to be recording in the courthouse, uh, they are to ask them to stop. And upon their failure to stop, they are to be asked to leave. And upon their failure to do both, they are to be arrested. Now, I've asked senior court officers on a number of occasions, what would I be charged with? They didn't have an answer. Mm -hmm. So uh, the best anticipation that I have is that I would be charged with disorderly conduct, failure to, to obey a lawful order, and trespassing. Both are violations, 15-day sentences. And uh, in order for a court officer to give a lawful order, there needs to be four elements, and they have three of them. But the one that they don't have in this particular case is jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. 
if I'm operating under my client's absolute right to procedural due process as a paralegal, recording courtroom paralegal, uh, and with respect to my client, uh, I was very upfront with the court about what I was doing. I filed a notice of special appearance and I filed the attorney paralegal agreement into the court proceeding. All parties were noticed. This is being live streamed. No, I'm not asking your permission. Mm-hmm. And the very first time, the judge said absolutely not a thing, nothing. Eventually, uh, on subsequent ones, it was the court officer that would say there's to be no recording. Um, and I just disregarded that, obviously, as I continued to live stream. Mm-hmm. And uh, they allowed it. And by doing that, uh, I set a precedent. And uh, it, it's not a strong precedent. It's called a sub silencio precedent, but it's a precedent nonetheless because they acquiesced. And uh, I mean, I blatantly took all of that evidence, the video recordings, and gave that to the entire administrative uh, hierarchy of the, the court system, the attorney general, the district attorney, uh, the court officers, the uh, and chief court officer of the state, um, and the entire New York State legislature, both houses. I said, you know what? If this is really a crime, come arrest me. And there was there was a judge that uh, that got out of hand on, on that particular topic uh, with one of his uh, with one of his cases, and, and I, I made a point to weigh in on. And I can't remember which one it was at this point, but I said, you know what? If you disagree with me, not a problem. You can respond with an arrest warrant. Just bring it. So I'm going to back the judiciary into a corner where they either have to arrest me or they have to give up this unlawful practice. And of course, if they arrest me, that's going to be a federal lawsuit. And that's that's going to go on and on in the federal courts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, oh, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. No, go ahead. Well, there was a time I remember, oh, geez, was it in the 90s? There was uh, a show that it was always live streaming court proceedings. Um, I don't know, it was Court TV, Court Network Television LLC. Yes. What happened to that? (laughs) Well, they still exist and they brought a, a case against New York. And it made it into uh, into the New York State Court of Appeals because in 2000, uh, New York Civil Rights Law Section 52 was twice found to be unconstitutional and uh, because it was overbroad. It still is overbroad. Uh, however, that particular case with respect to the press, uh, it was found that the fair trial rights of of those in the court must take priority over the rights to freedom of the press. And you know what? That makes sense to me. That's that's a correct decision. So I I I accept that. Now what the what the Court of Appeals failed to do 
uh, is they failed to to look at um, and in all fairness, it wasn't before the court, but they failed to look at it from the perspective of uh, a due process right. So that was never explored. This this is a case of first impression, and uh, it's it's something that they just haven't come across yet, which is stunning to me. Mm-hmm. All of the cases I've looked at across the country are First Amendment, First Amendment. It's a knee-jerk reaction. Mm-hmm. And I don't look at it as a First Amendment issue. First, First Amendment is a fourth-string argument. And uh, the the legislature, uh, excuse me, the uh, judiciary, in that case, courtroom, uh, court uh, room, Court uh, Network Television, LLC versus New York, 2005. Uh, They hid behind the legislature. They said if the legislature wanted cameras in court, uh, they would have extended New York State Judicial Law Section 218. And they let it sunset. So uh, that's that's their way of hiding behind the legislative intent. Uh, With respect to my arguments, my arguments are a little unique because my arguments start with the 14th Amendment the mm-hmm. Fifth Amendment, the right to due process. And when you're talking about procedural due process, there is no greater right that can be used to limit them. And in that sense, it's an absolute right. And I can cite uh, Harry V. Piffus, uh Supreme Court decision 1978, and uh, Ferrar V. Hobby uh, that follows up and affirms it. And I can't remember what year that was, but it's the foundation for organized society. Because if we don't have procedural due process, we have nothing. Mm -hmm. Now, what really raises their eyebrows is my next argument. Mm -hmm. All recording devices used in the courtroom are protected under the Second Amendment. And uh, they they start hearing Second Amendment. It's like all of a sudden they start waking up because New York is all about gun control. Yeah. And, and now you're talking about arms in the court? Yeah, I am. Because what they are are defensive arms against tyranny. If you, if you look at the history of arms, they're nothing more than tools with which to control tyranny. And certainly recording devices in, in the courtroom meet that criteria. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it in a logical sense, if you look at it in, in the, the context of language, it all makes sense. He walked into the courtroom armed only with a camera. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So they've never encountered that argument before either. Makes sense. Ah, think. <laughs> uh, yeah. They don't know what to do with it. <laughs> My yeah. right to bear arms shall not be infringed. Mm-hmm. You want to take my camera away from me? No, you're not. Well, they have to have these cameras in the courtroom. And also, what do you think, you know, tamper-proof mics? Because sometimes these judges, when I've been court watching, they get tired of what uh, pro se litigant is saying, and they just mute. And that's not fair. Well, you know, that's that's an important thing because... That's why I say that this needs to be under the independent control of the parties or those working on their behalf, because this way there's an an independent record where 
that issue of of uh, the judge muting it uh, or or technical difficulties or what have you, or that the the recording gets lost. Um, that is is no longer an issue. There, there's a case that made it to the Supreme Court. Uh, it was Towns v. Alabama. I cannot remember the year. And uh, it was uh, brought up on certiorari. And what had happened was there was a recording made. There was a transcript made. And there was the question of may or must. One word in the entire thing that was discrepant. And it was a capital life and death situation. And the judge, sua sponte, on his own motion, made the change from the, the original transcript, had it modified to the transcript from the recording. And then the recording was lost. Mm-hmm. So now the Supreme Court had no actual evidence on which to base an opinion and couldn't hear the case. Yeah. Isn't that convenient? Just lose the recording. They lose everything. Oh, of course. (laughs) So, uh, as far as independent recordings, that's how you fix that. Mm -hmm. You have um, paralegals that, that walk into the court and record on behalf of the litigants to preserve evidence as a basis for comparing and settling the transcript. And I see no situation that would prohibit that. Now, you've got to look at broadcasting as a separate uh, separate right. And, and there are certainly uh, some basis for, for limiting broadcasting. And, and I de- do tend to be conservative on that. Um, for instance, uh, there are some courts that would uh, would broadcast a uh, a hearing on the admissibility of evidence. I don't believe that's appropriate because that could contaminate a jury pool. Mm-hmm. So anything that that I think is is going to be prejudicial to one party or another. Uh, is is something that ought not be broadcast. Things like uh, national security issues. Mm-hmm. Things like uh, in, in New York State, we have New York State Judicial Law Section 4, which has eight exclusions for closing the court. So for closed courts, um, it's it's probably not going to be a good idea to broadcast. There are a lot of good reasons to broadcast. Uh, you have have substantive due process. You have the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. You have the First Amendment right. Uh, you have um, you have the public that has interest in in making sure that the courts are using their money and their resources to to effectively. Uh, do the business of the people and, and provide due process. And what the courts instead are doing is they're completely betraying that trust and failing to maintain uh, maintain any kind of uh, confidence in their process. And, and I'll give you an example. 
I have put an inordinate amount of pressure on the appellate division uh, as of late, the New York State Second Department. And by that, I mean, I have filed the declaration of, of the right uh, for parties uh, to record court proceedings. Uh, and I filed that with over 200 of the top government officials throughout the state, across all three branches. Um, that didn't quite do it. I, I, I did a couple of, uh, couple of live streams uh, that challenged the legitimacy of the courts, both immediately when I did that and 30 days later. That didn't quite do it. What ended up doing it was there is a requirement in the court rules, uh, reg, uh, codes, rules, and regulations, that says that any motion that is more than 60 days old needs to be reported to the chief administrative judge. All right. So I wrote out a FOIL request from scratch, mm -hmm. went through all of the, the statutes, all of the rules, and sent that off. Well, that set a fire. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that prompted a decision in order after nine months. Uh, and and to be honest, I, I was used to getting on the phone with the second department uh, motions uh, clerk and asking, you know, was there a decision? And uh, of course, I'd get no every time. But uh, so anyway, I got a decision mm -hmm. and they are depriving me of my right to have oral arguments before the court on the, the appeal. Well, I write my briefs thoroughly, and and that's fine. So it, they're they're also giving me the inclination that they're going to rule against me, and of course that's why we have the appellate process. Uh, I've given them no good reason to like me, none, and no tyrant should like me. Mm -hmm. And and you know if you're not a tyrant, okay, great, then you like me a lot. And that's kind of the, the polarizing effect that I have, but they they don't know what to do with me. That's kind of an honor. Uh, I suppose. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's they're not stumped. what I'm looking for. <laughs> they're stumped. I, I'm a dad that just refuses to give up. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really what it is. They've picked the wrong dad to mess with. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I'm going to continue to challenge them. And I don't think they've ever encountered anybody that is willing to walk into jail because that takes all of their, their you know, control by fear out of the completely, it leaves them without a weapon. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a, for instance, back in April, late April of 2020, uh, at that point, I had had COVID, recovered from it, quarantined from it, needed to file a motion into my case. So I went into the court. Now, they completely closed the building, but I don't believe in that. So I walk in. I'm the only civilian in there. And I walk in without a mask. And they lose their minds. Oh. And, and I let them catch their breath. And when they do, I say, you don't have the jurisdiction to require me to violate New York State Penal Code Section 240.35 sub 4. And they look at me like, huh? You got to wear a mask. You can't be in here without a mask. All right. So if I put on a mask, 
I'll be able to go see the clerk and file my papers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I go out, I put on a mask and, and I go back in to file my papers and they say, no, we're not accepting papers until May 15th. <sighs> now I was in a mood. Oh yeah. That was passive aggressive. Well, probably not on the part of the court officers. I, I don't think it was on the part of the court officers. I think they genu genuinely thought that I could have filed that, but, uh it was just an error and, and they weren't accepting it. And now I was cranky. Yeah. They don't like it when I get cranky. They really don't. Because what I did is I went home and I wrote a letter. It was a letter of complaint, which was extremely complimentary of the court officer. The big complaint was he didn't know that statute off the top of his head. Big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, it gave me an opportunity to write a notice of intent to be civilly disobedient that I was coming back on May 15th to complete my business without a mask. A five-page memorandum of law that explained how and why. And basically the governor's executive, uh, executive order saying you must wear a mask in public and the penal code that says you cannot wear a mask in public made it illegal to be in public for everyone in the state of New York under color of law without due process. So... I write this out and I send it off to one person, certified return receipt requested, et cetera. You wouldn't think a civil disobedience protest of one person where I've only told one other person would make much of an impact. I get a phone call because it's me. And he says, Jim, how serious are you? Because he knows if I dig in, that's it. There's a problem. I said, well, I'm finishing up my, uh, the, writing the plea for my arraignment to the lowest court outside the state of New York, which happens to be the Supreme Court of the United States. They've never heard one before, mm -hmm. uh, but that's okay. It will be complete to rule 33.1. And he knew that I could write such a motion and physically produce it complete to rule 33.1. And he's like, we've got a problem. He's intent on getting arrested. And, and this isn't going to go well. So he says, can I give you a call back? I said, sure. He picks up the phone. Now, he must have called the New York State Office of Court Administration. And my best interpretation is they looked at it. They said, we can't argue with the logic. He's right. We don't know what to do. So they very likely picked up the phone, called the governor's office. Now, Governor Andrew Cuomo used to be the attorney general. Should know this stuff. Mm -hmm. Didn't. Mm -hmm. Um so they tell him, look, uh, you, you kind of left yourself open here for a big embarrassment. May 14th, Governor Andrew Cuomo signs Executive Order 202.31, suspending that penal code, refers it out for repeal. It's repealed a few weeks later. This is what they've gone through to avoid arresting me. <laughs> well, you've got people in these positions that don't know the laws and they're it, probably even case law you know they don't know they don't know what they're doing clearly it's going along to get along and i'm not playing that game anymore mm -hmm. if i can't have due process nothing you can say or do is going to give me access to my children again mm. because you didn't have the acts uh, you didn't have the jurisdiction necessary to take it away And they're doing this to everybody. Oh, sure. Even if, like, 
I had transcripts. I bought all my transcripts. I looked through everything and believe it or not, nothing was missing out of it because I remembered every word in that whole courtroom as they were uh, screwing me over. But anyway, uh, so what do you do when you have a video recording or all these transcripts and there still is no due process? They just walk all over everyone in family court. Well, I had that experience with my client. She had these surreptitious recordings. And I said, okay, well, is there a substantive, uh, is there an issue that would be substantive instead of just, you know, a technical error? And there was one in one, one of them. I said, okay, well, then we need to make a motion to correct the record. And so that was done. And it was done appropriately. And the judge ended up saying, despite the fact that it, that it was perfectly submitted, he said, that's not before the court. He wouldn't make the change. So there are all sorts of issues within that case. Um, I, I believe there's there's uh, identity theft. There's, there's um, ACS that fought uh, CPS for jurisdiction. There's there's reversing this fact and that fact and the other fact, and it just gets read into the record. And she is unfortunately in the position of having to continually try to correct the record. And that's why, you know, she's an outspoken advocate. And uh, so it's the kind of thing where she just knows that uh, that this is what she's up against and tries to correct the record, but without actual evidence, there's no way of doing it. They, they read into whatever kind of narrative they want. Mm -hmm. And, uh, cameras in the courtroom is actually only one of, of three systemic, uh, deprivations of due process. You mentioned you were in court. Were you married at one point? Um, at one point, um, we had divorced at the end of 2004. Happy New Year. And so <laughs> we what's, what state? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Okay. Well, think about this for a second. When you got married, there were four parts to four legal parts to the marriage. And I'm going to do them in reverse. You've got the marriage certificate, which is prima facie evidence that the oral contract of marriage took place in preparation for the dissolution of assets arising at the conclusion of the marriage uh, in either death or divorce. You have the oral vows that are valid. You have the civil contract of marriage that is on the bottom of, of the marriage license. And, and the civil contract of marriage is no longer enforceable now that there's no fault divorce. But let's talk about the, the marriage license for a second. All right. Mm -hmm. Marriage is a fundamental right, correct? Obergefell mm -hmm. v. Hodges, 2015, Supreme Court decision. It can't be converted into a, uh, into a crime, correct? Miller versus United States, 1956, Fifth Circuit Court, not distinguished in the Supreme Court in 1958. Can't be converted into a privilege, can it? Murdoch versus Pennsylvania, 1943. So 
What you have here is a situation where they're depriving you of your right to marry under color of the Pennsylvania marriage license statutes without due process of law and then selling them back to you. Now, there's no right that exists that can't be limited to serve some greater public good. Do you have any idea what the greater public good the marriage license was introduced to serve in most states? So they could own you? No. There was a move in 1910 to consolidate and standardize marriage licenses across all 50 states. And the, the greater public good that it was to serve was to maintain racial purity in each of the states. Okay. This is on the heels of Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896, the separate but equal doctrine. So that ended on June 12th, 1967 with Loving v. Virginia. Mm-hmm. So now your right to marry is being limited under color of law without due process and sold back to you in a constructive fraud. And I, I had a Columbia Law Library librarians say yes so well here's yes so that means any judge that makes a finding of jurisdiction in a divorce case necessarily becomes an accessory after the fact that under the doctrine of ex parte young 1908 sheds jurisdiction from the beginning everything after that point is brought upon the court void and without effect that was the argument that i had in the second department against the assistant uh district attorney that went unrecorded. Hmm. That was on May 9th, 2019. Wow. You know, it's just, you know, I, I had represented myself, but see the thing after our divorce, we co-parented pretty decently for almost 10 years. You might know my story or not, but um, I introduced him to this woman who I cannot remember or knew that she worked in the courthouse. (laughs) Yeah. So then they were off running when I remarried things. She drove a wedge between the co-parent relationship and the relationships I have with my kids and dragged us, drove the crazy bus all through family court and uh, with no due process. And I'm sure this judge was out of his jurisdiction and his mind, but what do you do when you're dragged into it? When you're dragged into it, you you seek to process. I, I, I'll throw something out there. Um, you'll notice I haven't even mentioned any kind of his or her in, in this whole thing. Mm. Um, my ex, unfortunately, suffers with lupus. And has unfortunately been on the medication prednisone for 30 years, continuously. That's what drives my case. Mm -hmm. I think she's doing the best that she's physically capable of. And I think it's horrific, but I do believe it's the best she's physically capable of. Mm -hmm. So that's why I don't fight with her. I fight instead with the courts. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to round out the third point that uh, that strips due process in in substantive due process, there there is the foundational uh, concept that a judge cannot have an interest in the outcome of the case. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got a situation in all of these custody battles that the state 
gets money from the federal government and federal incentive grants mm-hmm. uh, from federal grant CFDA 93563 pursuant to 42 USC section 658A and 45 CFR 302.34, such that when an order of child support is ordered, financial child support is ordered, uh, the state has access to more money. And that happens because the child's the child's right to have an equal relationship with both parents is stripped without a finding of parental unfitness, without even a hearing, there's the assignment of custodial and non-custodial. And, uh, and of course that violates that principle right there. And you've got all the family courts that are, uh, that lose jurisdiction because uh, under the doctrine of ex parte young, because of that point. And if you want a good piece of case law to support that particular uh, issue, it would be Tumi v. Ohio, T-U-M-E-Y uh, v. Ohio, 1927, Supreme Court decision. Mm. And that goes way back into the Middle Ages. What about Troxel versus Granville? They don't seem to care about that anymore. Parent has the fundamental right to the care, custody, and control of their children. And, and that's looking at it from the parent's perspective. The parent, and of course, in a custody fight, is also due due process and is also denied due process under that pecuniary interest. It's it's not that they don't care about that. It's that they care about funding. Mm-hmm. Children are used as tools to drive funding. Mm-hmm. You've got CPS that uses children. Uh and that would be from federal grant CFDA 93603 pursuant to 42 USC section 673B. And, and you've got a situation, well, it just made the papers again, uh, Thomas Valva. Mm-hmm. Um, he had autism. And it is harder to place a child with autism than a child without autism. So CPS had a financial interest to place another child rather than placing him. I, you know, I almost, it's just, they're just so disgusting. Uh, There's no legitimacy in the system at all. No, no. And it appears these judges are making up the rules as they go along. They're deciding on a narrative, mm-hmm. an outcome, a narrative, and they're backfilling the rules as they see fit. You know, if if you know your case didn't go well, could you and it was way over with, could you go back and appeal it in the lower court where it was? Or would that be res judicata? Well, res judicata is different in that it is having the same issue in two different courts at the same time, mm-hmm. whereas the appeal has has an issue of timeliness of 30 days in New York State uh, to, to initiate the notice of appeal. And if you do not properly initiate that notice of appeal within 30 days, then you have acquiesced to the decision and order. Now, there is always an exception or almost always an exception. Um, If there were fraud involved, Mm -hmm. 
then yes, it could be brought, uh, certainly federally. Uh, and the question is, is there any fraud involved? Well, let's go back to the constructive fraud of the marriage license and start there. You've got that fraud. You've got the fraud of uh, fraud upon the court, uh, where the child's right to due process is is deprived. Uh, you have uh, mail fraud because if they mail you any of these things, uh, certainly that would be uh, a consideration. And you you have the uh, uh, the state getting money based on on uh, what was that? There is another level of fraud where where the state gets money from. Uh, the federal grants um, incentives yeah so you've got not a system of of justice but you've got a system of fraud and could all of this be opened up again absolutely uh i had filed the case and, and abandoned it in federal court but it, it's still there uh let's see second department 19 cv-02063 isolates all of the different frauds. So if you look it up on PACER, you'll see my arguments. Mm -hmm. Well, I had I had to appeal to the Superior Court on the child support because essentially what happened was they cost me my job through false allegations via CPS, which now when Commonwealth versus Sandusky came out, I don't even know, the Penn State scandal, Okay, so then all these hospitals had to have everybody have their child abuse clearances in time or you're getting fired by November 23rd. And I couldn't make it because my CPS hearing was December 4th, so they had to let me go. And so in the meantime, as, as soon as the judge gave custody to the ex, as soon as he got the order hot off the press, he ran down to domestic relations and filed for child support in the tune of close to $900. How can I do that when I don't even have a job? And the child support judge would not, she was uh, vindictive and she was uh, would not let go of this. And she was constantly calling me a full-time nurse when I was always per diem. And okay, so she, that shenanigans was going on. So I appealed twice to the Superior Court on the child support issue, and I lost the first time. The second time, 406 WDA 2017, I won. And um, put her in her place. You have to slap them down. You have to keep track, keep going and keep track of all your records. This is this is pathetic. It really is. It, it masquerades as a system of justice, but it's not. No. It's a system of frauds. It's a, it's a system for extorting money. Mm -hmm. And that's all it is. There's no, there's no legitimacy at all. I agree with you. I think family court should just be abolished and just get rid of it, take it back down to civil court. This goes way deeper than just family court or civil court. Mm -hmm. This this is an entire branch of our government that is 
not legitimate. So when you think of it this way, we, we are guaranteed a tripartite system of government. Mm-hmm. And we don't have that. We have two different branches that are somewhat functioning. And we have one that has no legitimacy. And that, that one that has no legitimacy has, has people in it put there by the two parties. And the, the, the common denominator across those two parties is that they are members of the bar. Now, if you look in New York, and I, I trust the same thing as in Pennsylvania and pretty much every other state, uh, one-third of the seats in, in the House, uh, and I haven't looked at the Senate, but in, in the House, uh, the Assembly, um, are filled with attorneys. Mm-hmm. Attorneys are officers of the court. When you look at the Judiciary Committee, uh Almost all of those seats, certainly a supermajority, is is filled with attorneys. Now, that's important because what happens there is that's a voting block uh, of of an organization that it's a lobbying organization, it's a political organization, and and it's got voting rights. So that's that, that's essentially a risen aristocracy within our government. Mm-hmm. And it deprives us of a very key uh, power. In 1826, there was a judge, James H. Peck, that disbarred an attorney, Luke Lawless, and uh, threw him into jail for contempt because he didn't like what he wrote about him in the local paper. Luke Lawless got out as a private individual and initiated an impeachment in Congress because that was a federal judge. And he was impeached. He survived the impeachment by one vote, but he was impeached. And it is because of that impeachment trial that we now have New York State Judicial Law Section 758 sub 6 sentence 2 that deprives judges of the power of contempt for an accurate reporting of what occurs in the courtroom. So when you look at impeachment, in order for the judiciary to have legitimacy, we the people need to be able to put judges into that branch and we need to be able to take them out Mm -hmm. because they can only stay there on good behavior, good constitutional behavior. And good constitutional behavior does not mean knowingly, willingly, and intentionally violating the rights of those before the court. So to take them out, you would initiate an impeachment before the, uh, in New York State, it would be the assembly uh, as grand jury for the court for trial of impeachment that happens in the Senate. Now, there are not many people that, that process that, but I can tell you that I have filed such a paper. Mm-hmm. against the trial court judge. It was a thousand four pages in four volumes. And it was it was the most thorough legal document I've ever written. The clerk of the assembly received it without any complaint or anything and passed it right on to, to the judiciary committee. Judiciary committee chairman, an attorney, said, oh no, that's got to go through the Commission on Judicial Conduct, where they're just about all attorneys. And it's a closed door, internal type thing where they say, oh, I've investigated myself. I'm fine. Hmm. 
And that's essentially what they did. And, and oh, it's unfounded, it gets thrown out because I don't know of a single pro se uh, complaint against any judge that has ever been founded. And the last time there's been an impeachment in New York was the only time there was an impeachment in New York. It was 1873. So unless we get attorneys out of the legislative branch, then we have no ability to have oversight on the judiciary. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's just a big mess. And there's so many frustrated parents and children out there that are just suffering through this whole family court system. I I just uh I'm just disgusted. Well so am I, but just as a final thought, uh one of the key things that I, I think we need to understand is that the constitutions are revocable trust documents where we the people above the age of majority and of sound mind are the grantors, all government officials are the trustees, and all people those that are infirmed, those that are not infirmed, those that are above the age of majority, and those that are not, uh, are the beneficiaries. So unless we turn around and we start focusing uh, and understanding this thought and, and realizing that our trustees owe us undivided loyalty within the branch of government that they're in, and we cannot keep waiving uh waiving that fiduciary requirement and uh, and not expect the separation of powers to be uh eliminated or erased and and the system of checks and balances to be undermined it's all our doing because we're waiving that fiduciary requirement by voting them into office well you know on a positive note on that one my counselor she actually stood outside of a poll booth saying with a big sign that said, don't vote for this judge because of this, that and the other thing she wrote, you know, and I think that's what people should should be doing because people don't know who they're voting in. I mean, I I had just moved here and they were voting on judges and I'm like trying to look up these these guys and see what they're what, what they do. You can't see their track record. I'm contemplating running against my trial court judge for New York State Supreme Court. Now, the the legal requirement is that you must be practicing law 10 years. I started as a pro se in 2016 practicing for myself. It doesn't say that you need to practice for other people. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to seek any party's candidacy. Writing candidate. I might actually get more votes than he does. Then what? <laughs> no, that would be great. That would be great. If I lived in New York, I would vote for you. Well, thank you. Definitely. That, that could be an interesting... Uh, I want him out of office. He he does not belong on the bench. Right. So that's, yeah. that's going to be an interesting down the road. Mm -hmm. I have some interesting things that are going to come up in, in the next several weeks, but uh, I'm, I'm not going to let them out of the bag yet. And uh, what other kind of questions do you have? Well, I think you answered, I think, all of them. 
it's just uh, parents are, when they're writing in their complaints on the judge's behaviors, is, I guess is what we're told to do is focus on their behaviors, not their rulings. But, you know, it just, uh, they're covered. They all cover for, for each other. Stumpy Sparkman, 1978. A judge shall have immunity unless there is a complete absence of all jurisdiction. And that goes back to a much earlier case. Mm-hmm. Court officers have different uh, jurisdiction. And, and that's something that, that I should mention. They don't have the same level of protection. Uh, their protection is bound by their jurisdiction. And the cases of Ex Parte Young, 1908, Shure v. Rhodes, 1974, Woods v. Strickland, 1975, Harlow v. Fitzgerald, 1982, and Tanzir, Tanzir, 2020. So if they don't understand the details of those cases, they are at risk. Mm-hmm. And I do try to have a very pleasant, friendly, educational relationship with the court officers because mm-hmm. they're stuck in the middle just like we are. Definitely. Well, I would like you to come back on in the future. I'd like that. As things evolve. And how can people reach you if they have any questions? I'm I'm sure you already have people contacting you all the time. I am, and I am stretched thin and inundated. But uh, I suppose the, the best place to, to get in touch with me is through the Facebook group, Cameras in Court Now. Okay. And um, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, no, that's that's pretty much it. I, I think that um, if we don't know our rights, we don't have any. And uh, I didn't know my rights for the longest time. And it helped get me into this situation. And I'm slowly climbing out of it. <laughs> but uh, I, I feel like I'm climbing out, out of a cesspool. I know that feeling. But thank you for your time. But uh, don't jump off. Slam the Gavel is a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here with James Kelly and other exciting guests. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.